Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read 17b. <coughs> we're looking at the armor of God fighting against the devil. And today we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit, and I've got two sermons. And I'll have, Lord willing, one next week. This is a very deep topic, and this is very important material. So the sixth and final piece of the Christian's armor is, and here's the passage, <coughs> excuse me, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This sword is the only primarily offensive weapon noted in Paul's description of our armor. We've noted armor, of course, armor is generally uh, defensive. And uh, what does a soldier do after he puts on his armor? He picks up his sword. And, and uh, that's the last thing he grabs, and that's, of course, the last thing described here. <clears throat> the sword is not the Holy Spirit, but the Word of God, which is produced by the Spirit. When Romans or Greeks would think about a sword for battle, they would think of the Roman short sword, which is a double-edged, very sharp sword that came to a point. <coughs> now, they had spears, and then they had the short sword, and the spears would used initially in the battle, especially against cavalry and so forth. But once the battle got heated and going, the short sword was the chief weapon. <coughs> it could be used in defense, but it was primarily a weapon of offense in close combat. Now, Paul uses the Greek word uh, makara, which can mean short sword, long knife, or dagger. The physical sword is an object used for physical violence in warfare, cutting, slashing, stabbing one's opponent. <coughs> the spiritual sword, which is the word of God, is used both defensively and, off and offensive spiritual warfare. And there are a number of things about the sword that make it so important and effective. Number uh, first, the sword, which is the word of God, is the chief weapon of warfare because it is produced by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The word of God, of course, refers to the Holy Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, the canon of Scripture. <clears throat> it does not refer to non-inspired apocrypha or to the many counterfeit gospels and letters produced by Gnostics and heretics after the canon of scripture was closed. Because there's all these knuckleheads on YouTube and so forth that are talking about these clearly uh, cytopigraphal false gospels and so forth. Now how do we know that the Bible is the infallible, perfect, sufficient, and totally reliable word of the living God? Well the answer is found in the scriptures themselves which are self-authenticating. It presents itself as the very Word of God. The Bible is to be believed because it is the Word of God. <clears throat> now, the secular humanist will argue that this is circular reasoning. But this objection is answered in two ways. One is because that there is no ultimate authority or source of being or knowledge above or beside Yahweh, the true and living God. It would be atheistical and rebellious to reject belief unless it was first proved by empirical means. <clears throat> in other words, the moment you say we cannot accept what God says to us in the Bible, but we have to prove it first through some kind of science or empirical observation, you've placed something above the Word of God, and now you're judging the Word of God. But the Word of God comes from God himself and is the ultimate authority. As Van Til would, like, would say, uh, the ontological trinity is the foundation of all predication. 
This, the only way we can have knowledge, the only way we can have true logic, the only way we can have real ethics that are binding, no matter what, is God, the God of the Bible. <clears throat> As the author of Hebrews says, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, Hebrews 6.13. In our Lord's parabolic story of the rich man and Lazarus, we read this. This is very instructive. <clears throat> Abraham said to him, and that's the, the rich man who died and went to hell, they have Moses and the prophets, because the rich man is uh, saying, look, please let me go back and warn my brothers about this place. I don't want them to come here. And here's what uh, Abraham says, Father Abraham. Now they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear that, them. And he said, no, Father, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded um, if... Uh, would they be persuaded if one rose from the dead? Luke 16, 29 to 31. And we know that's absolutely true. You look at modern science, which is modern fantasy, most of it. Theoretical science is just complete, complete fantasy. <coughs> the, earth, uh, the whole universe came from a singularity, where all the matter of the whole universe was in a ball about the size of a softball. That's what we're told. That's what the books teach in college. Well, what would you have if you took all the matter in the universe and put it in the si uh, something the size of a softball? You'd have nothing but a giant black hole. There'd be no way it could explode. There'd be no way it could create the universe. They, they believe in all sorts of nonsense, like macroevolution. Another reason lies in the fact that there is abundant proof if one is really objective and does not suppress the truth and unrighteousness because of a love of sinful autonomy and one-eighths one innate rebellion against God. Because we're all fallen, corrupted beings. Men have an axe to grind against God. They have an axe to grind against Jesus Christ. They have an axe to grind against the Word of God. That's why they need grace. That's why they need the Holy Spirit to believe. <coughs> For example, the Bible's written by several offers over thousands and thousands of years. Yet it contains zero contradictions and advocates the same doctrine of God, the family, salvation, and ethics... In other words, there's only one biblical world and life view. Now think about how amazing that is. Now, atheists and agnostics will deny that and say the Bible has contradictions, but if you look at how they present the contradictions, it's clear they don't know what they're talking about. <clears throat> it glorifies the true God from beginning to end. In addition, <clears throat> the Bible is the only religious book in the whole world with, full of detailed prophecies, not general things, but very detailed prophecies, predictions of what would take place in the future that have all come to pass perfectly with zero mistakes. The four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, the Greeks dividing into four empires when Alexander's dies, and then the Roman Empire. All that happened perfectly. It was all prophesied way before it happened. It's so accurate that modernists can't believe that it was prophesied when it was prophesied. And so they denied that it was. And they say, oh, it had to be written after the fact. But then we find these really old doc, uh, copies of Daniel and Isaiah and other books that show that the liberals are full of baloney. These fulfillments are so accurate and amazing that modernists and secular humanists, unbelievers, arbitrarily claim they had to be written after the fact. But such unbelieving presuppositions have been destroyed by archaeological findings. Note, only faith in the Bible as the very word of God is rational. <clears throat> if 
all the facts are objectively considered. And it is irrational not to believe in the Bible. The problem is, is that people have their own unbelieving presuppositions, their first principles, their axioms by which they judge the Bible. <clears throat> For example, when they debated whether they were going to have uh, teach creationism in Tennessee, all the secular humanists said, well, it's, that's a religious theory. We can't accept that. Well, yes, it is. It does. It is taught in the Bible. That's true. But the facts of the fossil record and the facts of human cells and the facts of DNA and RNA and all those things prove that it's true. It is scientific, but their presuppositions don't, don't allow them to hold to it, so they have to hold to an atheistic, completely unprovable, artificial, macroevolutionary theory. <clears throat> From cover to cover, the Bible presents itself as the very Word of God. There are hundreds of passages that explicitly tell us that the words of the prophets came directly from Yahweh. Such phrases as, thus says the Lord, and its equivalent occur 864 times. Eight, did you hear that? 864 times. The introductory formulas in the historical books and the prophets, for example, the word of the Lord unto, teach the same thing. Genesis 15, 1 and 4, 1 Kings 6, 11, 12, 22, 13, 20, 16, 1, 72, 18, 1, 19, 9, 21, 17, and 18, Isaiah 38, 4, Jeremiah 1, 2, 4, 11, 13, Hosea 1, 1, and 3, Joel 1, 1, Amos 3, 1, Jonah 1, 1, and 3, 1, Zephaniah 1, 1, Haggai 1, 1, Zechariah 1, 1, and 7, and 4, 8, and 6, 9, and 7, 8, etc. The Bible clearly presents itself as the very Word of God. The Bible frequently teaches its own purity and perfection. Psalm 2.12, 19.7 and 8, 119, 140, and 160, and Proverbs 30, verse 5. It is pure. It's not tainted with the ideas or sinful things of man. It's perfect. 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 Jesus said that the, God's Word is truth itself, John 17.17. 17. And everyone who contradicts the teachings of the Bible, Paul says explicitly, he says they're a liar. Romans 3, 4. Matthew, Matthew 1, 22, which is a quote of Isaiah 7, 14, C2, 15. Peter, Acts 1, 11, he quotes Psalm 69, 25 and 109, 8. Acts 4, 24 and 25, that's Peter again, quoting Acts 16, 10. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 5, 6 and 7. He's quoting Psalm 27, 97, 7, 104, 7, Deuteronomy 34, 32, 43, and um, Hebrews 3, 7, where he quotes 95, 7 to 11. Paul, Romans 9, 15, quoting Exodus 33, 19, uh, Romans 15, 10, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43, Galatians 3, 16, quoting Genesis 3, 15, Ephesians 4, 8, quoting Psalm 68, 18, and James James 4, 7, quoting Proverbs 3, 34, they quote the Old Testament passages as fully authoritative, fully authoritative, this is the basis of their teaching, and they introduce them with phrases such as, God says, the Lord says, He says, the Holy Spirit says. So do the apostles self-consciously teach and believe that the Bible was the very word of God? Yes, they did. That's obvious. It's crystal clear. <clears throat> Jesus taught, the inspiration and authority of the Old Testament and accepted the historicity of Adam, Matthew 19.4, Mark 10.6-8, the murder of Abel as a literal event, 
Luke 11:51, Noah and the worldwide flood, Matthew 24:37 to 39, Luke 17:26 and 27. Lot, Lot was a real man, Luke 17:28 to 32, the destruction of Sodom by fire and brimstone, Matthew 10:45, 11:23 and 24, Luke 10:12, a literal Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, John 8:56, Matthew 8:10, Luke 13:28, and Jonah being swallowed by a very large fish. Matthew 12, 39 to 41, Luke 11, 29, 30, and 32. Christ explicitly accepted the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, that is the five books of Moses. Matthew 8, 4, 19, 8, Mark 1, 44, 7, 10, 10, 5, 12, 26, Luke 5, 14, 20, 37, John 5, 46, and 7, 19. He accepted that David wrote the Psalms by divine inspiration. Mark 12, 36, See Matthew 22, 43-44, and Luke 20, 42-43. And the full inspiration and authority of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Jesus did. Jesus quoted Isaiah. And unlike modernists, and I list like 15 passages, I'm not going to give you them all, but, and unlike modernists, he did not believe or teach that there were two or three different authors of the book. He quoted Jeremiah, and there's several places. He quoted Hosea, Daniel, Micah, Zechariah, Malachi, on more than one occasion, as authoritative and infallible. He declared that everything predicted about him in the Old Testament scriptures must come to pass. Luke 24, 44. And whenever he refuted his enemies, he quoted scripture. Psalm 82.6, and said the scripture cannot be broken. John 10.35, this, mean, this means its perfection, sufficiency, and full binding authority cannot be destroyed or overturned. And of course, we already mentioned how when he dealt with Satan, his answer was always, it is written, it is written. Now he could have said, I'm, I'm the son of God, get, get out of here, but he used the scriptures. He fully embraced the full, plenary inspiration of the Bible. That is, inspiration extends not just to the ideas, but to the very words. For his whole argument in John 10, 10, 34 and 35 hinged on the meaning of one word. His use of scripture as a sword for defense and offense is observed in the temptation narratives. Every temptation and assault of Satan was met with the authoritative formula, It is written. Matthew 4, 4, 7 and 10, Luke 4, 4 and 8. In Greek, gagraftai. The verb could be translated, it stands written. The meaning here, and that's because he uses the perfect tense, the meaning is that the Old Testament scriptures given to the covenant people in the past had full continuing full authority the very moment they were revealed by God and continue to have full authority in the present. Satan retreated when he realized that Jesus would only do what the Bible authorized him to do. I'm not getting anywhere with Jesus. He keeps quoting scripture. And when I lie and I distort the scriptures, he quotes scripture to prove I'm full of baloney. Satan was rebuked for contradicting the scriptures and attempted to get the Savior to contradict and disobey the Bible. That's Jesus. Jesus, in a state of humiliation as a theanthropic mediator, he's a divine human mediator, fully relies on the inspiration and authority of Scripture throughout his whole ministry, over and over and over again. 
So these modernists, well, we don't, look at the Bible's full of myths, we just follow Jesus. No, they don't. As the second Adam, he dealt with the assault of the devil and he conquered. For the word of God, this is Hebrews 4.12, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You've heard about those Japanese swords that are so sharp and the steel is so good. The really good ones. Cut your head off with one slice. Right through the neck, right through the bone. Scripture sharper than that. Our Lord is the perfect example of using the scriptures defensively in order to force a wicked enemy to retreat. One can infer from this narrative that not knowing the Bible or being ignorant due to laziness, neglect, or worldliness leaves one with a very defective defense. Does it not? And I always remember when I was a door-to-door salesman, I was first a professing Christian in the 70s, and I would meet these Jehovah's Witnesses, and I would meet a lot of Mormons. And I, I, I pull these Jehovah's Witnesses aside, well, who, who do you really get through to? Who's the people you're really looking for? And the guy admitted to me, he's all, we like people that are Roman Catholic and are liberals who don't know the Bible at all. And he basically admitted to me that they were super easily manipulated because they don't know the Bible. They run into somebody like me, like when me and my wife went to the beach, there were some on the dock there and I kind of started preaching to them and they left within five minutes. <laughs> but uh, they don't want somebody who knows the scriptures because somebody who knows the scriptures will tear them apart limb from limb with the sword of the spirit. <clears throat> a man who goes into battle who does not know how to use a sword will not live for very long. Do we know the scriptures to the extent that we encounter pagans, atheists, skeptics, heretics, mockers, and so-called agnostics that we can quickly give the appropriate passage and say with Jesus, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God? Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, see Mark 12, 26, and Luke twenty. 37. Now, I remember when I was a pagan. I was an atheist for a while. I was into Hinduism for a while. I was into Buddhism for a while. Uh, and I remember as a pagan running into evangelicals who would try to witness to me and my friends. And I would just tear them apart because they didn't know what they were talking about. Now, they were right and I was wrong. But you need to be ready. You need to be ready to give an answer for what you believe. And you need to know good biblical arguments. Now, a New Testament passage that explains why the Word of God is effective and necessary as our two-edged sword against evil is 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the word inspiration here, Greek, theonoustos, from theos, God, and neob, to breathe, literally means God breathed. God breathed. English translations, unfortunately, have followed the Latin Vulgate translation in spiritus adio which means the inspiration of God. 
This translation does indicating a breathing into the scriptures, but can be confused with God inspiring an author in the sense of gifting or enabling human inspiration like what is said about people like Shakespeare or Milton. What an inspired guy. He's so inspired. God breathed indicates that the very words of Scripture come from the mind of God. So it's actually a better term, God breathed. But that's where we get that translation from the Latin Vulgate. And all the English translations follow it because all the first English translators translated it that way. <clears throat> scripture comes from the creative breath of Yahweh. The Bible owes its origin to the activity of the Holy Spirit who guided the human authors in such a manner that they wrote exactly what God wanted. Now, I didn't go into detail in explaining this in the sermon because it's already kind of too long, but um, we, we reject the dictation theory. Now, there are places where God simply says, God says, and they record exactly what God says. But there are these letters, these epistles, and gospels, uh, God directed them in such a way that the very words are what God, exactly what God wanted, even though the author's style remains. John has a style. Matthew has a style. Mark has a style. But it's still inspired. <clears throat> Peter teaches the same doctrine when he says, and this is 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, or the old King James made more sure, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying that prophecy is not something the prophets made up or came up with on their own, like Pat Robertson and modern Pentecostals who simply make up stuff and say, oh, God told me this. No, God did not. The revelation ceased with the death of the apostles. They spoke because they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets were not meant speaking forth their own ideas or the creations of their own mind. They spoke God's words. So scripture is totally unique. It must be treated with great respect, reverence, and care. It is God's gift to his people. Paul says, <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 3, and 5, that by revelation, he, Jesus Christ, was made known, made known to me the mystery. And the mystery there means the New Testament revelation. It's an exposition, an explanation. The Gospels are an explanation of what Christ did in his life. You have the Old Testament, which is predictive and speaks to us in types and ceremonies and shadows. And then you have the actual history. Christ comes and saves his people. And then you have the New Testament epistles and so forth, which explain what Christ did. And that's called a mystery because it was something not known with clarity like it is now to the Jews, but now it's made known. So he's using the term mystery in a very unique sense. In Ephesians 2.20, the apostle makes it clear that he is aware that the new covenant apostles and prophets were setting forth divine revelation, which along with the Old Testament was the foundation of the church. Peter, from uh, when you get a chance to read 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, was aware that Paul was writing scripture and he placed his epistles on the same level as the Old Testament. So they were aware, the apostles were, that they were writing the New Testament. They were aware of that.
Well, now let's look at the importance of inspiration and infallibility. Very important doctrine. If you lose this, you lose Christianity. If you lose this, you just become a liberal, a secular humanist. The fact that Scripture is breathed out by God, infallible, or without error, down to the very thoughts and even words, not only in spiritual theological matters, but also in issues of science, history, chronology, geography, economics, etc., is crucial for only a fully dependable, inerrant book could be the sole standard for faith, what we are required to believe by God, and life, how are we supposed to live? And here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. This is 1.8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which is the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to all the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. Now, once one posits the fully unscriptural and satanic idea that the Bible contains errors, mistakes, myths, which is taught by liberals, neo-Orthodox, secular humanists, then one has completely destroyed biblical Christianity. <clears throat> For if there are mistakes here and there, the whole document becomes untrustworthy and undependable. If there is no infallible guide, how are men going to know what they should believe and what they must cast away as error or something that is only human? How do you know? Christian liberals or modernists adopted the idea that the Bible is not the Word, but only contains the Word of God. For it contains many mistakes, many errors, many myths that were made up by the Jews and later by Christians after the death of Jesus. And there were modernists back in the 20th century who put out Bibles and they'd have uh, like a certain color in the text, which they think definitely was real. They'd have another color which says it's uh, definitely not real. Then they'd have other colors like this may be real, we're not sure. And then they'd have, well, this probably is real. <laughs> There'd be like four different colors. And guess what they never thought was real? Stuff about going to hell. Stuff about how bad sin is. All the things they didn't like, they automatically said, well, that's not the Word of God. You see? And how are you going to trust anything if it's full of mistakes? It's like if you're going to take a uh, craft down to the bottom by the t Titanic, and uh, it's all really pretty solid, but there's one area that has a bad mistake, it's built improperly, you end up dead. It's kind of sad, but that's what happened. And he was warned. <clears throat> this view of scripture led directly to modernists over time adopting every secular humanistic concept of reality and ethics under the sun. Macroevolutionary theory, which is complete nonsense. Did you know that, according to their view, that the earth for millions of years was just covered with lava and had no atmosphere? And they believe that all the water from the oceans came from comets? Well, what happens when a comet hits molten rock and there's no atmosphere? Guess what happens? 
it burns up and the oxygen, I mean, and the water vapor evaporates and it's gone. There's nothing to hold it in. Yet they hold to that because they have to hold to that. You know how much water is on the planet Earth? You don't want to know how much is on planet Earth? If you removed all the mountains, if you shaved off all the hills, if you took everything above ground and uh, leveled everything, the whole Earth would be covered with about two miles of water. That's how much water is on planet Earth. So the idea that it came from comets, their whole view is just so unscientific and so ridiculous, but people don't question it because they're taught that science is like God. It's like a religion. Science is really good at some things. If you can do repeatable experiments and study the repeatable things, you can say, yeah, if we leave a cat in a box without sunlight for a month, it'll go blind. If you repeat that, then you can make predictions. But when you get into theoretical things, it's all complete fantasy. It's all complete nonsense. <clears throat> so they adopted every pagan, atheistic concept of reality and ethics. Macroevolutionary theory, socialism, statism, abortion on demand, sodomite marriage, divorce for any cause, fornication. They teach that fornication is okay if you're in love, whatever that means. Of course, that contradicts the biblical definition of love. Sodomite marriage. The transgendered abomination. All these things are accepted by modernist churches. They have transgendered uh, elders and ministers. They have women ministers and elders, which is totally unbiblical. And they have sodomite and lesbian ministers and elders, which is a downright abomination. Now, why is their version of Christianity indistinguishable on a practical and epistemological level from atheism and rank paganism? The reason is that once men decide that the Bible is full of errors and myths, the Bible itself no longer is the authority, for it will be placed under man's autonomous human reason and sinful subjective creativity. Man stands as a judge over the Bible. The Bible's not the authority. Sinful men are the authority. And we can see what sinful men do. They justify sin. They like to get divorced for any cause. They like to commit adultery. People like to be sodomites. So they just arbitrarily make up a new ethic. The scriptures are placed in the dock with sinful autonomous man sitting as judge over the Bible. And it is for this reason that Satan's first attack against Adam and Eve was to call into question the veracity of God's word. Genesis 3.1c Has God said... And this is the sense of, has God really said something so unreasonable? You must be mistaken. God couldn't have said that. That's ridiculous. You can't eat from that tree. He's denying you your civil rights. I'm serious. This tactic was followed by an outright denial. You will not surely die, Genesis 3-4. Oh, God's lying to you, man. He's denying you the blessing. He's denying you your civil rights. Do whatever you want. That's the path to dominion. That's the path to happiness. That's the path to joy and freedom. Don't listen to God. Satan, if he gets you to deny the word of God, he's got you. As Christians, we are required to believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, perfect, sufficient word of the living God. This is foundational to our faith and our armor. For only 
An infallible, perfect word of God warrants our complete trust and hope. We have the assurance of faith and stand in the solid, immovable rock of Scripture. Now, I have doubts about myself. I'm a rotten sinner and I do stupid things. But I never doubt the word of God. It's perfect. I'm far from perfect. Now, moderates and secular humanists teach us the authors of Scripture, where you're going to hear this sooner or later. They're so bound and conditioned and influenced by the ancient cultures that they lived in that much of the Bible is simply a reflection of the ethics, customs, worldview, sociology, and religion of that ancient world. You see this all the time when you get people who claim to be Christians who are liberals like sodomite pastors and stuff, and they go on ABC News or CBS or whatever, or Nightline or whatever, where they don't have Nightline anymore, I guess. <clears throat> the worship of only one infinite personal God who is perfectly righteous, holy, and just could only be found among the Jews in the whole ancient world. Now, there was a very brief period in Egypt's history where the ruler worshipped the sun. But that's not an infinite personal God. That's idolatry. All cultures worship many gods. The Romans, the Greeks, uh, the uh, Germanic tribes, the Vikings. They all worshiped many, many gods. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Indians. I was talking to an Indian the other day. He was bragging how we have, well, we have thousands of gods. He thought that was great. <clears throat> The pagans living around the Jews all worship many idols and a great number of pagan societies in the Middle East, most of them, practice child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, and bestiality. They had ritual male homosexual prostitution, they had ritual female prostitution, and they had ritual bestiality connected with the worship of their religions. <clears throat> that's all proved. That's not Christians talking, that's secular scholars talking. The Mosaic Law was radically different and far superior to all the heathen nation law codes. Even the, the Code of Hammurabi, which everybody quotes, is wonderful. If you read it in detail, it's not wonderful. It has adjusted, the slaves have one form of justice, which is really terrible. And if you're a property owner and you're wealthy, you have this form of justice for them. And then if you're a leader or a government official, you have another code of justice for them. Totally unfair, totally unjust. And that's what we're returning to with secular humanism. But the idea that... Uh, they were just adopting what was around them as insanity. Totally inaccurate. The biblical view of the family. Heterosexual monogamous marriage with divorce only in the case of sexual uncleanness or adultery. The New Testament and the Old Testament agree. And sexuality is incredibly superior not only to all ancient societies, which had all kinds of perversions, but also to modern secular humanistic cultures. The Romans and Greeks, getting a, pro a man to have a prostitute was no big deal. Now, it was wrong to sleep with your best friend's wife. They didn't like that. But if you wanted, you know, if the guy just needed to relieve himself and he'd go stop it and get a hooker, that was totally acceptable in Rome. And there were, there were houses of prostitution all over the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. And I, there are shows on it. Uh, I think it was Corinth or Ephesus where they, I saw an archaeologist and there were, there were whorehouses all over the city and there were phallic symbols carved into solid rock pointing to where to go. And it was pretty acceptable. 
Now, it is true, God tolerated the custom of polygamy for, the, for a time. That doesn't come from the Bible. That came from the culture. But it is clear that it is not something authorized by God. Genesis 2, 18-25, Matthew 19, 4-6, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Titus 1, 6, Ephesians 5, 22-31. In addition, the biblical doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, not the works of the law, which is taught throughout Scripture, is absolutely unique among all the world's religions. There's nothing even remotely like it. Judaism, Islam, the cult, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Way International, they all teach salvation by works. Romanism, which is a perversion of Christianity. They all teach salvation by works. Only Christianity teaches that we're saved through Jesus Christ. Totally unique. <clears throat> In addition, Scripture is amazingly unique and different from all other purported revelatory religious documents, for only it is inspired by God, infallible, and inerrant from cover to cover. Now, I wasn't raised a Christian. I read the Upanishads. I read the Bhagavad Gita. I, I, I read all the stuff about Buddhism. I read, I read uh, you know, stuff about Islam. Those things are so obviously false. If you, I mean, if you look at them objectively, they're so full of mistakes and f absurdities. But you read the Bible, and you do, if you, you know, I know people can't be objective. They have unbelieving axioms. But the Bible is totally, totally perfect. Since the Enlightenment, especially among intellectual elites, it became popular to assume unbelief with regard to the scriptures and take a stand of dogmatic skepticism. The whole idea that the infinite personal God, Yahweh, could infallibly reveal himself to mankind in propositional form was rejected a priori, that is, before even the facts are considered, without any consideration of evidence. By the 19th century, these unbelieving, arrogant presuppositions began to corrupt scientific theories and analysis. The truth of the matter is that atheists, skeptics, agnostics and secular humanists ignore the overwhelming evidence for the true God and his special revelation because their unbelieving presuppositions do not allow belief in the truth as even an option. Now, I like Ken Ham and I like the creationist stuff that he, they put out. And uh, if you study that, really study it. The, ev the evidence for creation and against macroevolution, it's overwhelming. And the more you know about real science, the more you see that the idea that the earth was this ball of flaming fire and it became this beautiful place full of water and life, it's, it's totally ridiculous. It takes way more faith to believe in that nonsense because it's irrational than it does to believe in the creation by God. Paul says, Romans one twenty one. they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were da uh, darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now let's look at the sword as a defense. The word of God is a defense. Excuse me. If we place our faith not in God, but like modernists, only in the opinions of sinful, highly fallible men, then God is not the object of faith and ground of authority. Men are. Now, look at secular humanism. Look at the French Revolution, where they were murdering people left and right for the most ridiculous reasons. 
and totally oppressive. Look at communism. Look at atheism. Look at socialism. Look what it's the slaughter of millions of people. Look at Biden. Look at the Democrats. It's okay to murder babies, but don't put murderers to death. Secular humanism and unbelief is insane. In opposition to all error, to all false philosophy, to all false principles of morals, to all the sophistries of vice, to all the suggestions of the devil, the sole, simple, and sufficient answer is the word of God. This, and this alone, puts to flight all the powers of darkness. Now let's look at the sword as a defense. Now the word of God is a defense against the assaults of the devil and temptations, for it is used by the Holy Spirit. This is very important. To inform our conscience, sanctify our thinking, and convict us of false doctrines and behaviors. If you're a hitman for the mafia and you, you fail to put a bullet in the guy's brain and kill him, you feel guilty because your conscience is, is informed by Satanism. <laughs> the Christian has to develop a conscience based on the Word of God. Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. The scriptures give us the whole system of doctrine for salvation. Everything we need to believe is how we are to conduct our lives, everyday lives, and the worship and government of the church is revealed in scripture. <clears throat> if one is to grow in grace and withstand demonic assaults, he needs a standard by which to judge all things. So we are to use scripture to constantly evaluate our thinking and behavior in order to make sure that we are walking according to the Spirit. Note David's use of the word. And this is from Psalm 17, 3 to 5. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. Total dependence on the word of God for behavior. The Spirit of God uses the word as a great preservative against temptation and evil. <clears throat> when the devil contradicted Scripture and tempted Jesus, our Lord always stood upon the word of God, saying, It is written. Matthew 4, 4, 7, and 10. If we are to be serious about a solid defense against evil, we must learn the Scriptures and meditate upon them until our thinking totally reflects God's thinking. Our minds must be, and this comes from Van Til, receptively reconstructive. We don't create our own ethics. We don't create our own path. God does, through the Bible. We must think God's thoughts after him and reject all human autonomy in doctrine and in ethics. And David sets forth an excellent example of this in his meditations on God's moral law in Psalm 119. Let's look at some of these. Think about how wonderful these are. Here's verse 8. When I learn your judgments, I will keep your statutes. Verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. 26c and 27a. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Verses 30 and 31. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies. 
Verses, uh, that was 30, 31. Here's 33, 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with the whole heart. Here's verse 101. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. Here's 104 to 106. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. And I could have quoted many more. I limited myself. Now one must learn the word and firmly believe it. That's pretty obvious. Believers must study it, gain a full understanding of it. One must commit oneself to fully obeying it. A Christian must also hate false worldviews and ethical systems that contradict it. The Psalms are crystal clear, so are the Proverbs. So is the law. There must be knowledge, faith, understanding, commitment, or fidelity together with a holy hatred of sin in every false worldview. That's what we're taught in the Word of God. The Bible clearly rejects all concepts of ethical, philosophical, or doctrinal neutrality. As Solomon says, and this is from Proverbs 6.23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. You want the blessed life. You want the good life. You want the happy life. You want the joyful life. You want to be blessed by God. There's only one way. Learn what the Word of God says and make sure you believe it, understand it, and obey it. All these gimmicks, all this uh, Norman Vincent Peale psychological garbage has taken over so many churches, you know, where, where you have to have a certain mindset, a psychological mindset, and God will bless you. No, no, no. Obey the Word of God. God will bless you. God's commandments are directions for life. Instruct us in two practical wisdom. Yahweh's way is the only true, right, and just, and good way. If we want to be right, just, wise, and good, we must learn, study, and understand them. And we must also diligently and habitually obey them. We must practice them to the point where they are second nature to us. We want God's moral law to be a habit where we obey it automatically. And I always think of Joseph, very godly man. He's helping out around the house of his master. He's, the master's gone. The master's very wealthy. He's got a very, very beautiful wife. She tries to get Joseph in the sack. Joseph, within a millisecond, leaving his jacket behind, is out the door of the house. He doesn't even have to think about it. He's so habitually righteous, he's so habitually in tune with God's law, he's running out the door the very moment she says that. Paul notes that this process is a crucial aspect of progressive sanctification, Romans 12, 2. And when you get a chance, look at Philippians 3, 14 to 16. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <clears throat> because all unregenerate men are corrupt, depraved, and devoted to sin, once they are regenerated and converted to Christ, even, through the, the, even though the power of sin has been broken, 
definitively, Romans chapter 6, they must progressively reject that old way of thinking and through study, prayer, and the means of grace transform their heart or mind to the biblical way of thinking. Now, if you're raised a pagan, that takes a lot of hard work. And you can't give up. You must keep doing it. You know, if you're raised to think that getting high and scoring with girls and being popular is the most important thing, you've got, you've got to reorient your mind completely. This imperative is no different than Moses called Israel to be holy. This is Leviticus 18.3-4. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Is it any different today? Look at our culture. It's a rotten filth. Where people look up to Kim Kardashian and these rap stars. Or nothing but filthy whoremongers who worship money and success and fancy cars. They're the world. It's the world. Christians are to continue to reject conforming to this world, present tense is used, and continue to be transformed in their hearts to the teaching and standards of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image, Jesus Christ by the Spirit of the Lord. There is an inward mental transformation of thinking and character away from the world's thinking and standards toward the perfect man Christ himself, the only perfect lawkeeper in history, in thought, word, and deed. John 8.46 and Hebrews 4.15. The apostle said something similar in Ephesians 5.7-11. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. When you see a professing Christian and they're hanging out with unbelievers and they're snorting coke and getting hookers and fornicating and doing all this stuff, that's not a real Christian. That person hasn't repented of their sin. They're following the world. We're to hate the world with a holy hatred and diligently follow Christ. Can sin be fun? Yeah, I've taken drugs. It's a lot of fun. Is it biblical? No. You have to reject it emphatically. And of course, it's not productive. It is clear that this understanding, this knowledge and understanding does not lead to a place of neutrality or pluralism, but to a holy hatred of sin in every false way. Such a mindset does not listen to the voice of Satan speaking through college professors, the media, the news, television, movies, pop music, etc., the culture, and the unbelieving crowd. Doesn't listen to that. Doesn't listen to that at all. To see false, wicked, anti-Christian worldviews through the lens of Scripture is to hate them root and branch. For we understand what they really are. These are things not to be compromised with, admired, tolerated, or integrated in order to be socially relevant. They are to be despised, abhorred, shunned, and emphatically rejected. He who is such a lover is a lover of such satanic trash is a compromiser, a syncretizer with demonic, immoral, antichrist filth. 
and I've seen, you know, I, I, I used to be a musician, professional musician back in the 70s with a, with a bunch of pagans. And I've seen people raise Christians and the Christians get involved in music and they start hanging out with all these pagans because it's really hard to find good Christian musicians. And pretty soon they're smoking dope. They're hitting the ladies. You know, you got to reject the world, man. Yahweh! looks upon what is happening in Europe and America philosophically and ethically in the same way he viewed the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Philistines. We must learn biblical discrimination and determination coupled with a fervent hatred of immorality and every false way. You know, this old Republican thing. Oh, we've got to get along with the Democrats. We've got to compromise. They're evil. They're satanic. They're going to lie to you anyway. They're going to say, oh yeah, compromise with us. And then they stab you in the back. Most Christians often have a very confused worldly concept of love. The modern mindset regarding love is to say that love must accept a person just as he is. That's what all the sodomites say. That's what all the transgendered say. You have to accept me. You have to use my pronouns. You have to accept me fisting and being a total pervert, disgusting, rotten person. Accept it. Praise it. Be proud of it. They want us to accept it no matter how wicked, perverted, unnatural, and insane their thinking or lifestyle is. This observation is particularly true in America in the realm of sexuality. We just had Sodomite Pride Month. What are they proud of? What, what are they accomplished other than sexual perversion? Thus, there are movements within certain professing Christian communities to accept homosexuality and homosexual marriage. Modernists have already accepted such things a long time ago, and they have sodomite, lesbian, pastors, and elders. There's movements within a number of branches of evangelicals that we need to accept sodomite marriage. There really is. The Lutherans, the Christian Reformed Church. But the Bible never separates the meaning of love from the content of the moral law. Anybody who wants to separate love from the content of the moral law is a liar, is a Satanist. I didn't put this passage in here, but I should have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he says, love always obeys the law. To tell somebody you love them and to fornicate, or to tell somebody you love them and then commit sodomy or something, that's not love. That's satanic love. That may be emotion. It may be emotional. You may feel good, but that's not love. Love obeys the law of God. Scripture considers the hatred of evil, unbelieving ethical systems, philosophies, heresies, and the ways of thinking, living as a crucial aspect of the true religion. It is one of the things that separates true Christianity from the false. Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance in the, every evil way. And the perverse mouth, I hate. Proverbs 8.13, David concurs. You who love the Lord, hate evil. Psalm 97.10. For the psalmist, it was a mark of, the, of true sincerity. Psalm 101, 2b and 3. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will not. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I will hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Psalm 119, 128. I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, I hate every fault way. That's the Holy Spirit. Psalm 139, 21, 22. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. Psalm 
I count them my enemies. I'll have to stop there. We'll come back this afternoon, but these things are pretty simple. These are pretty simple principles. Yet we don't see them being followed by large sections of the church today. When you suggest that we need to meditate on God's moral, Old Testament moral law, learn the precepts, try to understand them, try to apply them to our lives, we're told we're legalists. Yet if you read the New Testament, there's, no, there's nothing new in there about ethics at all. It's all. It all presupposes the Old Testament. In fact, the word fornication, you can't even define the word fornication without the Old Testament. The word fornication is a very general term meaning sexual immorality. Well, where do we learn what sexual immorality is? Yeah, the New Testament condemns adultery, and it condemns homosexuality, but there's all kinds of things. The New Testament never mentions bestiality. The New Testament, uh, well, it does talk about incest in one place, but it, it assumes the Old Testament ethic is still binding. We need to study, we need to understand, we need to learn it, we need to apply it. We need to walk in it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the sword of the Spirit, sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword, it's wonderful, Lord. What a gift. Cause us to understand it, to study it, to love it, to walk by it, to be covenantly faithful to your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.